Hello, everyone. Um, great to see you all out um, to look at such a, a great topic, apologetics. Uh, as Ian was saying, uh, my name is Tim Houston. I work for an evangelism group called Crown Jesus Ministries. That's our logo. Um, and pretty much we're all about evangelism. Everything we do is in some way connected to this desire to, to preach the true gospel of Jesus Christ across the island of Ireland. This possibility that people can have reconciliation with their Father in heaven through the pure grace that we find in Jesus. And there's, there's nothing else I think that I would really want to be spending my life doing. And I feel very privileged and honoured that, that God's given me the opportunity um, to do that. But, but it's something that all of us uh, can be involved in. And apologetics is a core part of that uh, in the culture we currently find ourselves in. Um, and the aim of the seminar today is to take one hour, just under an hour now, and it's to take a glance at apologetics as a whole, okay? And I really hope this seminar is actually very simple, in nature, I hope it comes across in a simple manner for the main reason that apologetics shouldn't be something that is too complicated for anyone out there to grasp, right? The Christian faith, what Jesus has done for us, is something that should be understandable, should be accessible, should be relatable to every single person in our society. So as we come to look at apologetics. The goal isn't to introduce a lot of technical terms and technical theories, but rather to make the gospel of Jesus so simple and accessible for everyone in every culture. So that's the goal, okay? Um, and I think, you know, this seminar is called Everyday Apologetics because I think apologetics can be part of our everyday conversations in work our everyday conversations with family, with friends, with fellow students, with whoever it is, every Christian is equipped to play a role in the ministry of apologetics. I want you to think through um, some opportunities that you've maybe had uh, in the past few months of life to introduce apologetics uh, into a conversation. I was thinking about this myself um, some scenarios that came to my mind, and I've, I've obviously removed names and slightly altered scenarios, but here's a few scenarios that have came across my path in the past month or two. I wonder, can anyone relate to these? So one was, uh, okay, so you're speaking to a teenager um, from your church youth group, and um, the issue of creation comes up in conversation, as it sometimes does, and the teenager tells you that the biblical account for creation has been disproved by science. There's no evidence to prove the existence of God, and you can't take that part of the Bible seriously. Okay, so I came across that on a mission trip to India uh, a couple of weeks ago. Another scenario, uh, speaking to a good friend from university, kind of time, who's not a Christian, um, and we're talking about a Netflix documentary came out recently called The Great Hack. Has anyone seen that? Um, it's, it's an amazing documentary all about data mining and how people can pretty much pay Facebook to kind of influence elections. And that conversation kind of evolves to think about what shapes our opinions as humans? What shapes our morality? Where do we get a general idea of what's right 
and wrong and you know you really want to share your faith into that but you're not quite sure how another scenario another friend has seen something that you recently wrote an article on um, or maybe posted something on Facebook about current legislation in Northern Ireland take if you were here last night uh, the whole issue of abortion legislation in Northern Ireland and um, he disagrees with your views he says religion should not play a role in politics Christians should not be enforcing their beliefs on others it's not right how do we respond Okay, so these and so many others like it, I'm sure you've all encountered a few different scenarios, but they're everyday scenarios that can come up in conversation. And it's scenarios where um, if you're a Christian here, you're going to be faced with challenges, but you're also going to have opportunities to share how God and how his gospel are relevant and beautiful for today's world and this is the goal of apologetics to show how the christian faith is able to provide answers to life's questions and to demonstrate why the gospel is relevant for everyone thinking about the issue of evangelism apologetics and evangelism go hand in hand as we seek to communicate why someone should turn to Jesus, why it's great for them, and also what he has done to enable them to do that. Um, But let's just take a minute to look at this term, uh, apologetics, um, and and where we get the word from. So this word, apologetics, it's, it's often misconceived. It comes from a Greek word, apologia. Okay, and originally in ancient Athens, this word referred to a defense made in court. Okay, so someone would have an accusation uh, made towards them. They would be taken to court, and after that accusation has been leveled, the defendant would have an opportunity uh, to stand up and refute the charges with a defense given in reply. Apo meaning away, and logia, speech. The the accused would attempt to speak away the accusation. That's the root of where we get the word apologetics, apologia. Okay, and maybe because that's the root of the word here, apologetics can be misunderstood. So because apologia traditionally means defend, we can think of apologetics almost like a, a combative word, a fighting word, where it's our job as Christians to, to put up the shield and defend ourselves from every criticism we come against. It's, it's like a fighting word. So we associate apologetics with, with these fancy academics who are armed with scientific arguments, uh, you know, some of which are brilliant, and we're helping God protect Christianity as if he needs us to do that. We, we destroy atheism. We beat down those people who disagree with our views. This is not what apologetics is about. It's not combative in nature at all. Apologetics is welcoming someone into an open discussion about the truth and love of Jesus Christ. It's not that we're defending ourselves as if we're in court to save our own skin or justify ourselves. Apologetics is a wide discipline. It incorporates theology, philosophy, evangelism. Alistair McGrath, a brilliant homegrown apologist, he describes apologetics as representing a serious and sustained engagement 
with the ultimate questions raised by a culture, people group, or individual aiming to show how the Christian faith is able to provide meaningful answers to such questions. Um, just a, a word of note, I did have notes printed out, but I did not print out enough, sorry. So if anyone wants to make notes on their phone or anything, um, if you give me your email address here, I'll happily email you out um, all the notes um, for that. So a biblical grounding for apologetics, why is this good for us to do as Christians? Well, one kind of key verse in the word for this is found in First Peter. Uh, it's on the screen there. It's First Peter 3.15. He says, In your hearts set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer. So that's that phrase, apologia. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Just a few things to draw out of us to encourage us in our apologetics. The first thing is this. Apologetics is for all Christians. Okay, so Peter wasn't writing this letter to an individual. He wasn't writing this letter to a particular group in the church. This letter was addressed to a church who was scattered geographically. We read it was scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So modern-day Turkey. This letter was for every Christian who would read it, regardless of location within that area, regardless of specific ministry role. And there's two commands here that we can take to apply to our Christian lives. If you look at that first one there, set apart Christ as Lord. So that's a given for all of us as Christians, right? That Jesus is set apart in our lives, that he is greater, that he is worthy of more than anyone else, that he is worthy alone of our worship, of our devotion, of our adoration, of our service. First command, set apart Jesus as Lord but also to give a reason for the hope that we have. Apologetics is for everyone, not just for the highly trained or the people in specific ministries, but every Christian has been commissioned to be giving reasons as to why we have the hope that we have. It's our role as Christians to bring apologetics into our everyday conversations. And every Christian, I think, should be equipped in some way um, to do this. So obviously, there's those who have been really gifted in this area and who do a lot of the hard work on our behalf. But all of us surely should be able to provide a reason why we have the hope that we have that's relevant to our society. We don't have this base level Christianity where we set apart Jesus as Lord and then this higher level that gives a reason for the hope. It's all one in the same. So the second thing we can get from this, apologetics is a continual practice. Okay, notice that Peter says, second line there, always be prepared. Okay, so in an ever-changing culture, we're going to have different questions being asked. We're going to be facing different challenges, facing different issues, whether that's in theology, ethics, science, social factors, the family unit, whatever it is, 
things are changing as they always have been. And so for us, as apologetics, we need to be continually renewing our mind in how to provide a Christian voice into these matters. We need to put the effort in to remain sharp and focused both on what's going on around us and what an adequate response to that is. It's like going to the gym. I would love if one trip to the gym a year was all it would take for me to be in good shape. Who knows that's not true, right? I need to be continually going back. It's like a discipline. I need to continually put in the work week after week after week, which I don't do. Um, But for apologetics, we should definitely be doing that. And, you know, there's plenty of great resources to help us do that. You know, if you were to go to the the Faith Mission bookshop there, you'll find some great stuff on apologetics. A quick search online. There's so many good websites. The Ravi Zacharias Trust, William Lane Craig, all have done brilliant things online to help equip Christians in everyday apologetics. So we need to put the work in. Uh, Third, apologetics is a bridge. Okay, so if you notice here, Peter says we need to give the reason for the hope that we have from reason to hope. The objective in apologetics is not to win the argument. It's not to prove ourselves right, but ultimately to be bridge builders, to reason with someone so that they may find hope in Jesus. If reasoning with someone is something we do on maybe an intellectual level, to find hope, it's a change in the heart. To find hope is not an academic thing. To find hope is to find true purpose, to find true love in your life. And apologetics can create that bridge from reason to hope. Peter Kreeft has written a book, The Handbook of Christian Apologetics. He says, in a sense... The marriage of faith and reason is the most important question in apologetics because it is the overall question. Apologetics is the attempt to ally reason to faith, to defend faith with reason's weapons. Michael Ramston says, Apologetics is not about introducing a dose of confusion into the gospel in order to make it sound more profound. It's about communicating the profundity of the gospel so as to remove the confusion surrounding it. Peter says that we should engage in apologetics with gentleness and respect. Peter has a a clear belief here that the tone we take when engaging with culture, regardless of what we're faced with, should be Christ-like. We should always be treating people with gentleness, respect, love. There can't be any distinction between the message of grace that we're communicating and the tone of grace in which it's communicated, right? And finally, the implication of this scripture. Third line down, everyone who asks you. Right? A life, for Peter, it seems to be clear to him, a life which sets apart Christ as Lord, a life which pursues holiness, a life which is consumed by his greatness and worship of Jesus will be a life that prompts questions. How we talk, 
what we do, our lifestyle, our beliefs, our value system will be different in some ways and it'll hopefully lead people to ask questions and pose challenges. You know, it is uh, obvious to see this when, when our beliefs differ on some political matters or economics or media or, or lifestyle or a belief in the nature of God or the existence of God. Our differences are not something to be shied away from. It's an invitation to have conversation when challenges are posed to us. So we're going to spend the rest of our time here. We're going to think about our strategy and tactics and apologetics. And we're going to have a brief look at that. So when it comes to strategy, I'm talking about the overarching objective for apologetics. And I've got three things that we can seek to achieve in our apologetics. And then we're going to look at uh, three tactics, so the practical outworking of that strategy. Okay, so these three things help clarify what apologetics is all about and how we can be effective. Okay. So, three things we can seek to do in apologetics. Defend our faith, number one. Number two, commend our faith. And number three, translate our faith. Okay. Um, so, let's look at... Um, Oh, no, don't have a slide for that, sorry. We're going to look at this idea of defending our faith, okay? So a lot of our apologetics is going to be reactive in nature, right? And part of our job is to seek to provide an answer or engage in healthy conversation to help get clarity. Whenever someone asks us a question about our beliefs, whenever someone challenges us as to why we hold a certain opinion, Okay, so Peter outlines this well, as we've just thought, everyone who asks you, okay, part of our role will be reactive, to react to what's happening around us. Sometimes these questions, you know, they're going to be maybe straightforward theological issues to address, okay, but but a lot of other times these questions are going to be extremely difficult. Who knows that sometimes you just can't answer a question and that's the matter resolved. Sometimes that is not enough okay questions of personal suffering right questions of illness you know something like natural disasters think about the current discussions in the media um, about something like abortion or other very sensitive ethical issues which are prominent in our culture right now some people um we may find have misconceptions about Jesus, misconceptions about Christianity, things that simply aren't true about what we believe. So in defending our faith, we can seek to rectify those misconceptions. But some other people are just going to have issues with Christian theological um, kind of uh, things and our worldview, which aren't misconceptions, but just objections to what we believe. So in defending our faith, We can seek to communicate why we believe what we believe and why we think it's good for society and how it ultimately points to Jesus. And this idea of defending our faith, it has to start with ourselves. It has to start with that inner dialogue that goes on in our mind. See, I can't defend something if I don't know why it's worth 
defending. I can't defend something if I don't know what that thing actually is. We can't defend Christianity in public if we can't defend it in our own minds, right? We need to ask ourselves the big questions before someone else does. I need to ask myself, why do I believe what I believe? Do I truly believe it? You know, we don't want to be a people who simply take for granted everything that's been told us, right? We want to be Christians who dig deeper, who want to explain why we have the faith that we have. We want to take time to wrestle with God, to dig deep into his word, to find the hidden treasure in theology, the hidden treasure of relationship with Jesus, to persevere through those difficult times of questioning and to come out the other end having already grappled with these issues and stronger to respond to them in society. If we're honest, we've all had questions. I want to know why God is compatible with science and astrophysics and the Big Bang. I want to know how the God of the Old Testament is the same as the God of the New Testament. You hear that question a lot. I want to know how to come to terms with disease and suffering and all of those tough things. I can't defend my faith in front of others until I have sought the answers myself. In apologetics, we need to do the seeking before we can provide any answers to other people. Charles Spurgeon said, The man who never reads will never be read. He who never quotes will never be quoted. He who will not consider the thoughts of other men's minds proves that he has no brains of his own. You need to read. Awesome quote. Um, We need to take the time uh, and effort because this shows that something is worthy of defending, right? Whenever we take the time and effort to put the legwork in. Austin Ferrer, um, a 60s philosopher, he picks up on this idea of our need to defend things. He said, it is commonly said that if rational argument is so seldom the cause of of conviction, philosophical apologists must largely be wasting their shot. The premise is true, but the conclusion does not follow. And this is the important bit. For though argument does not create conviction, the lack of it destroys belief. What seems to be proved may not be embraced, but what no one shows the ability to defend is quickly abandoned. So in our apologetics, we may not be seeing, you know, a lot of people coming to Christianity. But as the church, if we do not show an ability to defend what we believe, it will be quickly abandoned in the public square and quickly abandoned in our friendship circles, I think. And importantly, in defending our faith, we are not being defensive. We don't need to kind of be like a castle and kind of pull up the drawbridge whenever we sense a storm approaching and and just kind of stay behind the drawbridge until the storm passes. You know, defending our faith is not about protecting the church, but being open to being challenged, being open to have the tough conversations. 
not shying away from the issues that make us uncomfortable. Our attitude and our tone taken is vital. All the confusion or criticism in the world could not threaten the sovereignty of God. It could not threaten his plan for the church on this earth. So we do not need to be defensive in our attitude. So first strategy we're trying to achieve in apologetics is to defend our faith. The second one is to commend. Okay, so if defending our faith is reactive, then commending our faith is proactive. So apologetics isn't always on the back foot answering other people's concerns, right? It's also proactively showing the Christian faith to be amazing, to be true, to be rational, to be reasonable, to be the true giver of hope, okay? And communicating that in a way that can be grasped by the, uh, the listener. We need to be proactively involved in our society, and in everyday conversations to show that this makes sense. We can be involved in all spheres of culture, politics, media, family life, education. We can commend the Christian faith in all of these places. And in our conversations, this requires us to be intentional. Right? At some point, we have to make the choice to ask maybe the awkward question, we have to make the choice to maybe turn a conversation in a different way. There are many ways to commend something, right? So we could commend Christianity on the basis of it being rational and logical. Okay, we could talk about the argument why we're here at all, the origin of the universe being so finely balanced on a few numbers that have altered to one power in the 10 to the power of 36, all life on earth would just cease to exist. That's called the fine-tuning argument. We could talk about uh, the creation of the universe being one that points to an intelligent creator. Okay, We could talk about the reliability and authenticity of Scripture and how there's overwhelming archaeological evidence to show that the New Testament is accurate and authentic within one generation of Jesus. We could talk about the life of Jesus himself, his life, death, and resurrection, and all the evidence for that. We could talk about the moral argument for why we're here, about having objective morals requiring an objective lawgiver. So many ways that we could appeal to reason and logic and rationality to commend our faith, but we can also commend it through showing that it does what it says it does. Right? It's not just about providing arguments for why Christianity is true, but showing that it actually works. That the promises found in Scripture are actually true. That Christianity is real hope and not just wishful thinking. Right? Our lifestyle as a whole should be apologetic. Our lifestyle should be giving evidence that Christianity is true. You know, for example, whenever we read in the Word that the fruit of the Spirit, the effects of being filled with the Holy Spirit of God through faith in Jesus are love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, goodness, self-control. We are evidence that that is true when people see these things growing in our life. When people see the transformation that happens in someone's life when they truly seek the kingdom and love Jesus with the entirety of your heart. 
our willingness to serve and worship Jesus, I think, is evidence. We don't just need to show something in theory, but demonstrate that it actually works in reality. So we can seek to commend our faith. And the third thing is translate our faith, right? So we're not talking about language translation here, but we're talking about this awareness that in our current cultural climate, okay, and on a, on a broad scale, I'm talking about postmodernism, where there's a rejection of objective truth, where what's right for one person may not be right for another. The main themes and ideas of Christianity are going to be a foreign language to a lot of our culture. I'm talking about the whole island here, the island of Ireland, north and south. What we actually believe is a foreign language to a lot of people. Unlike trying to read a foreign language that you've never been taught before, we can't simply expect our culture, our friends, our colleagues to know and understand what we believe and what we're all about. So one of our jobs as apologists is to work out how we can best communicate what we believe in a way that's faithful to the word, yes, but also accessible to the listener. Think of the idea of repentance. For example, such a fundamental part of being a Christian, something a lot of us here are probably so familiar with, but that will be totally alien to someone who has never heard that taught to them, who's never been required to repent of anything before. We don't use that term, I don't think, in any other areas of modern culture today. The idea of justification, the idea of sin. Do we take time to actually articulate what we mean by these essential terms? Do we know how to explain that? If someone asks us, what do you mean by justification? What do you mean by being filled with the Holy Spirit? What exactly are you talking about when you reference sin? What exactly do you mean by repentance? Are we able to articulate that? With someone having no grounding in Christian theology, we can't expect them to understand what we're talking about unless we take the time and effort to communicate what we believe in a way they can grasp onto, right? And even if they weren't able or they weren't willing to go on to become a Christian, at least it won't be because they just couldn't understand what we were trying to ask of them or tell them about what Jesus has done. C.S. Lewis says in his book, Christian Apologetics, This is uh, paraphrased, a few paragraphs put together. He says, we must learn the language of our audience. If you cannot translate your own thoughts into uneducated language, then your thoughts are confused. Power to translate is the test of having really understood your own meaning. Our business is to present that which is timeless the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow in the particular language of our own age. What language are we using to communicate the Christian faith in today's Northern Ireland, in today's Republic of Ireland? Are we still using the same language in some areas that we did in the 50s? If so, have we assessed, do people actually understand 
what we mean. It's a job that all of us has to do. So that's three tactics. Defend, command, and translate. And very quickly, we've got... uh, Oh, sorry, that was a strategy. Now we've got three tactics to go alongside that. So tactics are the practical outworking of the strategy, okay? Three very simple things that we can put into practice, okay? The first thing, ask the right questions, Okay, so, uh, you know, sometimes maybe in conversation, um, maybe if you're watching Nolan or something like that, you're listening to radio, maybe you're scrolling through Facebook and you hear a viewpoint that is totally at odds with what you believe, whatever that is, okay? Uh, I'm sure we've all felt that temptation to be the keyboard warrior, right? And say, no, that's not right, you're wrong. We can feel that kind of you know, that feeling inside us. Or maybe we encounter a view that's conveyed with big statements uh, and, um, you know, passion. Uh, and it can be hard to know where we even begin to engage in conversation in an area like that. But asking some key questions are a brilliant way to get the ball rolling. Okay, so think back to those three scenarios, um, if you remember them that I said at the start there, or any scenarios you've encountered. So one option is we can immediately give our point of view. Okay, we can immediately say, this is what I believe. Yes, and, and it may be productive. It may be good, but, but it, it may close the door to further conversation. Or what might happen is in giving a definitive statement back, we shift the burden of proof onto ourselves. Okay, where we then have to give an adequate explanation as to what we just said. And if we're not equipped to do that, it might not go well. Okay, but one other option is we can take some time to ask questions. This proves beneficial for a number of reasons. So for that person, for example, who's uh, doubting the existence of God based on science, you know, I I might ask something like, okay, but what do you mean by God? What kind of God, what what do you define God as here? In what way do you think science has disproved the existence of God? What evidence would you find convincing that God exists? Okay, in this conversation with my friend about morality and where right and wrong comes from, I might ask him, okay, but where does objective moral truth come from? What shapes your views on what's right and wrong? How can we condemn some actions as right and some as morally wrong if there's no moral lawgiver? You know, for someone telling me that Christians shouldn't impose their beliefs on others through politics, you know, I might take some time and ask, you know, well, do you vote? Are you not expecting your candidate to pass laws reflecting your own point of view? Isn't that imposing your belief on others? Should only non-religious people be allowed to participate in our political system? Does our democracy not provide the right for freedom of speech for all? You know, can, can you give me an example of legislation that isn't grounded in someone's personal belief of what's right or wrong? And there's a few benefits of just having this, you know, being naturally inquisitive in conversation, okay? Um, Firstly, we're inviting people to a a deeper, more sustainable conversation. 
where we're able to learn more about what they think and how they view the world. So we aren't asking questions from this place of dismay or from this desire to put them down with questions, but it's the opposite. We're asking questions from a place of wanting to understand their point of view and show respect by paying attention to the statement they've just made. Questions enable us to avoid you know, coming across as preachy, which can happen sometimes, or condemning, because we are showing a genuine interest in what someone truly believes, even if we disagree. Questions also help us to not jump to conclusions about what people really think. Questions help us to ascertain what the barriers truly are to someone coming to Jesus. You know, if we don't take the time to do that in conversation, if we don't understand where someone is truly coming from, then we won't be able to to try and address the actual concern at the root. This entails that we listen. The conversation flows both ways. Secondly, the good thing about questions is that they push a conversation along in the right direction. Questions allow us to guide a conversation to spiritual topics, okay? I remember that one question with my friend last weekend. It started me asking, and this wasn't intentional, it just happened. I just asked him, have you seen that documentary, The Great Hack? And and throughout that conversation, I barely shared any of my views at all. And I came came out of the conversation just really thankful, because at one point, he asked me, where do you believe objective morals come from? And I was like, yes. I was like, I I believe that there is a moral lawgiver, that there is a God, that there is a deity with a personality who is utterly sovereign over this entire world. And it was using simple questions that just guided this conversation along in the right way without seeming pushy or forceful. Simple questions are amazing. And because of that conversation, in that one instance, I now know much more about what my friend believes, and he knows much more about what I believe. And this enables us, the next time we come together, to have a more effective conversation, because we know where we're starting from this time. Gregory Kukul, he wrote a book called Tactics, he's a great apologist, he said, sometimes the little things have the greatest impact. Using simple leading questions is an almost effortless way to introduce spiritual topics to a conversation without seeming abrupt, rude, or pushy. Questions are engaging and interactive, probing yet amicable. Okay, so the third thing that are great about simply asking more questions, they they help both ourselves and others to form a clearer view of what it is they actually believe and sometimes to help challenge a mindset. Sometimes, you know, we can all hold mindsets simply because it's what we've always been immersed in, maybe through family life or university life or whatever it is. And asking questions is the simplest way for us to simply encourage deeper thought about really important topics. You know, one very simple question, what do you mean by that? Can I I just check, what exactly do you mean by that statement you just said? Why is it that you think that? Right, that can be all it takes to encourage deeper thought. 
you know, strategic questions like that, it, it can help highlight like, ambiguous or vague statements and get to the root of what it is someone's actually trying to say. And of course, if we ask that of others, then we need to be prepared for the question to be asked in return. If you reflect on um, Jesus and his interaction with others, he was the master of asking good questions at the right time, right? Um, think, for example, Jesus is asked, um, uh, you know, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And Jesus responds, show me a denarius whose image and inscription are on it. So he asks a question in, in order to more fully flesh out the intention behind the question. He highlights this cultural trap. Okay, if Jesus says, no, it's not right to pay taxes, he would be guilty of um, you know, disobeying the authorities. If Jesus says, yes, pay your taxes, it would look like he's supporting the oppressor. Instead, he has this genius answer, give to God what's God's. But it started with getting them to think, whose face is on this coin? Right? Another example, Luke 18, someone comes to Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Right? Probably a simple question for Jesus to answer. But he responds, why do you call me good? Right? He just asks this question. And again, the, the asking of this discerning question, it must have prompted deeper thought in this guy's mind. Right? Why do I believe he's good? Do I truly believe this man is God? If so, how am I going to respond to that? Right? Jesus was the master of just asking these very simple questions at the right time. So that's tactic one, ask the right questions. Our second tactic um, can be to know our audience. Okay, We need to know the culture that we are living in. We need to work out how we can present reasons for our hope in the right manner and in the right way. So if you think back to your past generation, um, you know, you could say maybe 60 or 70 years ago, the, the Western kind of generation would have been defined under the term modernism. That's debatable. But if you think about this term modernism, there was a lot of thought and focus placed on rationality and logic. And whenever it came to finding purpose, a lot of the attention was focused on, can we find a scientific rational logic explanation as to why we're all here. So for apologists back in that day, that would have been the core aim of their focus to show why Christianity is logical, why it's compatible with science. Okay, but we're now living in a postmodern culture where mindsets are very different. Okay, what do we know about postmodern culture? We know that it's pluralistic. There's no absolutes. There's no objective truth. There's no definitive one reason for why we are all here. Instead of there being a pursuit for why humanity is here, there's now a pursuit for why are you as an individual here? And that looks very different depending on who you ask. What's true for one person simply may not be true for another. It's also eclectic. Okay? It's a pick and mix of the best belief systems someone can find, the best styles of doing life, the best ways of working. It's empirical. It's based on experience for each individual. 
So if I have a different experience of life to my neighbor, we'll come out with very different views on why it is we're here. And it's also ephemeral. It lasts a very short time. It's constantly changing and mutating. So when we're trying to be effective evangelists and apologists in a postmodern culture where objective truth has largely been put to the background, there needs to be much more of an emphasis on personal experience, on, on personal choices. We must be able to show why Christianity is great for you as an individual, not just for all of humanity. The power of story is so powerful in a postmodern culture, communicating why Jesus has changed my life, communicating my experience of knowing him intimately may not have been worth much in a modernist age, but in a postmodern age, it's so powerful. Have you crafted your testimony? You know, in conversation, can you appeal to, to not just rational, logical explanations for Christianity, but also the personal, the personal impact of what Jesus has done for you, how he has impacted your life, how knowing the love of Jesus is, is just so good for you, how it gives you hope. Are we able to kind of communicate that? Um, part of the benefit of knowing the culture that we're in and the people that we're talking to is that we can present the gospel in a way that they understand as we've thought about there. We read in Luke 13, this is really interesting. Jesus says this statement, what is the kingdom of God like? What shall I compare it to? So Jesus must have walked into this place and he thought about the message that he wanted to communicate. Okay, so what is the kingdom of God like? Okay. But then he looks around him and he says, oh, okay, what's in this culture that I can compare it to? Okay, and we need to be doing the same. What is there in your culture? In, in, in your culture, your neighborhood, your family culture, your work culture, what is it that you can be finding those links to the gospel in. Um, a book, Ministering Cross-Culturally, talks about this idea. Um, this is what it says. God's son studied the language, the culture, and the lifestyles of his people for 30 years before he began his ministry. He knew all about their family lives and problems. He stood at their side as learner and co-worker. Luke 2.52 tells us that he grew in favor, not only with God, but also with man. We see this, if you look through the book of Acts, for example, the way that Paul preaches the gospel to different cultures is so different, yet he's communicating the same message. In Acts 13, um, he, he's, he's preaching to the Jews and he tells them of their heritage, waiting years and generations for this Messiah to come. He talks about the exile that they collectively experienced. He talks about the promises contained in the Old Testament and he urges them to consider that Jesus is the fulfillment of this promise. Okay? Yet when he goes to somewhere like Lystra and Derby in Acts 14, He's speaking to a totally different culture. It's a pagan culture. It's polytheistic. They worship many gods. And Paul doesn't mention any of that stuff. right? He, he picks up on a direct challenge to the idols they've been worshipping. 
He knows that they're very concerned with agriculture. He knows that they sacrifice to idols in order to get rain. So he talks about rain. He talks about how God has been so generous in giving them rain to feed their crops. And he picks up on this thing that's so important in their culture and relates it back to the goodness of God. So interesting. In Acts 17, Paul goes and preaches to this group in Athens. And we read that the people in Athens, they did nothing but listen to the latest ideas. So this is a culture who's very philosophical in nature, who are constantly searching for new ways of doing life, new ways of finding meaning. And Paul presents this description of the Christian faith. He he talks of a God who wants to be sought after. He talks of a God who can be found, just not in the temples that they were looking at. It's a very brief thought, but if you read through Acts 13 to 17, you can see so clearly how Paul adapts his conversation and his dialogue dependent on what culture he's in, yet communicating the same message that Jesus came to bring life to the full. So what about for us? Think of your family circles. You know, think of, of those people who you long to see um, come to faith. Think of those people you work with. Just as we've had different struggles and different experiences in life, so will the people we're engaging with. We can't reduce people who are seeking to this generalized stereotype of a seeker with one generalized answer about what Christianity is. Everyone is different. And in in defending our faith, we need to know our audience. Where has someone come from? What have they experienced in their life? What culture are they immersed in currently? What questions are they asking? What barriers to faith are present in their life? Has someone had a really bad experience of church 20 years ago? Has someone never stepped inside a church building? Has someone ever heard the gospel? Have they heard the gospel too much, communicated in the wrong way? Have they been brought up in a culture maybe surrounded by a different religion or something like that? We need to know what's going on in people's lives. This is not to be nosy, but to appreciate that people are unique and diverse and we owe them more than to give them the kind of standard response to a seeking person. And this isn't about changing the gospel to make it relevant. The gospel is eternally relevant. It will always be relevant in every culture Ever, but it's more helping our audience understand why it is so relevant and urgent right now, regardless of the setting that you're in. It is urgent that you turn to Jesus because he is so good. Right? And our final tactic, and um, got two minutes here, is to know the unchanging word, right? Um, questions can help facilitate conversation they can open doors uh, to, to further apologetics and evangelism knowing our culture is so helpful but ultimately the time comes where we need to articulate what it is we actually believe and in order to do this we need to know the unchanging word of God we need to be familiar with what our Bible says says the Bible is still relevant because God is still 
relevant. We have to resist the temptation or the pressure to put biblical truth to the background of evangelism, to put the Bible to the background of our conversations. We need to be close in the word. And we need to know arguments of how to support that. Okay, I, we didn't really talk about any specific apologetic arguments today because an R wouldn't do that stuff justice. But one book, if anyone's interested, they probably have it in the Faith Mission Bookshop, Mere Apologetics by Alistair McGrath. Um, the final few chapters of that are just a brilliant summary of some core apologetic arguments. Um, I would really recommend people get that book. I'll finish with a quote um, from St. Augustine. Um, from about the late 4th, early 5th century. This was before he came to faith, okay? And we, we know him to be such an iconic Christian, right, who has gone down in history now. But we read, before he was a Christian, while he was a professor, um, he went to uh, a lecture of, of a famous preacher, Bishop Ambrose. And according to history, this guy was an incredible preacher, okay? But in his book, Confessions, this is what Augustine wrote, very interesting. As I opened my heart to recognize how eloquently he was speaking, it occurred to me at the same time, though this idea came gradually, how truly he was speaking. First, I began to see that the points which he made were capable of being defended. I thought that nothing could be said for the Christian faith in the face of the objections raised by the Manichees, but it now appeared to me that this faith could be maintained on reasonable grounds. So I don't know what this guy preached about, but Augustine went in, not even necessarily seeking, according to his conversations, he went in thinking that Christianity was indefendable. There's no justification for being a Christian, but whatever this guy said, he linked reason to hope. He used apologetics to provide evidence for why he believed what he believed. And because he did it well, this was a vital step on this guy coming to faith. Okay, so i just love to pray for you um, to close, if that's okay. Uh, Father, I just uh, thank you so much, Lord, um, for everyone in this room. Father, I thank you for our shared experience. Um, and those experiences that, that we've had on our own. Father, I, I, I want to pray a blessing over everyone here in Jesus' name. Father, I pray that we leave here knowing the love and peace of Jesus in our hearts and in our minds. I pray for anyone in here, Lord, um, struggling with questions, Lord, or struggling with circumstance, or struggling to come to terms um, with Christianity. I pray your blessing on them, Lord. Father, I pray that they would know your favor and your goodness and your compassion and your love in Jesus' name. Amen.